calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Julian Spector. The mask of self-deception was no longer a mask for me. It was a part of me. Night lifted it, laying bare the stifled truth below but there was no one to see except myself. Robert W. Chambers, The King in Yellow As I rounded a bend on Haddock Street, something vaguely grotesque caught my eye. I had just enough time to recognize what it was, a semi-flattened mound of roadkill, but I didn't have enough time to avoid it. Even though it was already dead when I hit it, I was still repulsed by the subtle thump I felt as my car's tires passed over it. I remember squirming in my seat, thinking about the little bits of bone and flesh being pressed into the tread of my tires. It was nauseating, but it definitely woke me up. While I had been daydreaming through my morning commute just a moment before, I was now acutely aware of my surroundings. But when I got to work a few minutes later, my senses quickly dulled as the monotony of another day set in. For the previous few years, I had worked on the graphic design team at a furniture company. H. Pearl Nelson & Co. made furniture in a fairly wide variety of styles from simple, modestly-priced pieces to the fancy crap your rich uncle filled his living room with during his second midlife crisis. They specialized in sofas, or, as the copywriting team called them, modular seating arrangements. They also sold tables and lamps and various other furniture pieces, giving them equally pretentious and confusing titles like accent surfaces or 
illumination devices. Nothing was given a straightforward color. Sofas weren't gray or purple or beige. They were gypsum or lilac or terracotta. My job was to create illustrations of the products for brochures and catalogs. I made small imaginary rooms and filled them with images of furniture. It wasn't really all that different from the hours I spent playing The Sims in middle school. My days were spent curating tidy little environments that would never be occupied by real, living beings. I placed the Jacobin ottoman on the Cristobal rug, set the Florentine lighting arrangement atop the Getty shelving unit, whatever would feed the desires of indulgent customers. Sometimes I imagined myself in the spaces I created, sitting silently in those sterile, empty rooms, waiting for the decor to imbue me with a sense of place, a sense of belonging. Occasionally, I would even dream about the places I constructed. I would pace from one lonely room to the next, searching desperately for a way out. But every door I opened led to another lavish setting that was void of all humanity. It wouldn't have taken a clinical psychologist to tell me that I was unhappy with my occupation. But still, I couldn't leave my job. It was all I knew how to do. And it paid well. So, in the interest of my well-being, I spent a fair amount of my free time volunteering. It got me out of my own head and kept me grateful. Most often, I went to St. Agatha's residential facility. I spent time there with people burdened with debilitating conditions like schizophrenia and dementia and PTSD. People whose diagnosis made it difficult or unsafe for them to live on their own. But I was often surprised at how funny and smart and resilient the residents were. My favorite person at St. Agatha's was an elderly man named Emerson Baylor. Nobody called him Emerson, though. Instead, he insisted that we call him the Bird Coach. The Bird Coach spent most of his time outside in the courtyard. He would pace around and shout encouraging messages to all the birds that he saw. That's an excellent migratory pattern, he would yell at a passing flock of geese. Or, if he saw a particularly agile goldfinch, he might say, Great form! and clap his hands a few times. He was especially fond of hermit thrushes and the songs they sang. In the evening, he was often the last resident to go inside because he couldn't stand to miss the thrush's twilight performance. The bird coach was a pleasure to interact with, but for the most part, I just liked to watch him do what he enjoyed. It was a reminder that even when life puts you in a difficult position, there's still beauty and joy to be found. Anytime the dreariness of my job got me down, an hour spent in reverence of the bird coach would be enough to lift my spirits. There did come a time, though, when the volunteering simply didn't feel like enough anymore. I was going to St. Agatha's once or twice a week, but I still felt unfulfilled. There was an emptiness in my life. 
and volunteering wasn't changing that. I was 26 years old and I had spent my entire life in the state of Montana. So, I decided that perhaps it was time for me to see what else was out there. Maybe changing my surroundings would give me a shift in my perspective. I had always felt a curious attraction to New York City. From all the music I loved and the movies I watched, NYC seemed like the cultural capital of the world. Essentially, every artist and author I'd cherished had made a life there, so why couldn't I? I booked a one-way ticket and found a relatively affordable room for rent in Brooklyn. My job could easily be done remotely, so management didn't mind me making the move. When I think back, I can still clearly remember my first day there. I was so enthralled by the size of the buildings. Everywhere I looked, there were towering arrangements of steel and glass reaching into the sky. In a way, it was frightening how small I felt in comparison. I took a walk through Central Park and emerged in front of the Dakota, its ornate brickwork and gabled roof making it look like a castle from the Bavarian countryside. I walked over to the entrance where John Lennon had been shot 40 years before. I stood there, wondering what those last few seconds had been like for Lennon, before a tenacious doorman walked over and shooed me away. It took me some time in the city before I stopped feeling like a tourist. I remember riding the subway and watching the seasoned locals who stood in the middle of the car. They kept their balance without holding on to any of the railings, seeming to predict every bump and sway of the track, hardly looking up from their phones as the train repeatedly shuddered to a stop and jolted back into motion. Eventually, though, if it didn't begin to feel like home, New York at least began to feel like a place where I belonged. I made some friends and started going out at night. I may not have had the most vibrant social life, but I was happy. On an unremarkable evening in early May, a friend of mine invited me to a party in Midtown. I didn't know much about the guy throwing the party, but he lived in a fairly posh neighborhood, so I was expecting to spend the evening surrounded by insufferable stockbrokers and uptight Ivy League grads. But I figured I didn't have much to lose by showing up. So I went. I arrived at the building at just after 9 p.m. and rode the elevator up to the seventh floor. Shannon, the friend who had invited me, greeted me at the door to the apartment, and together we walked down a long hallway that opened into a noisy and crowded kitchen. We each grabbed a beer and continued into the living room. The second I stepped into the room, though, I stopped dead in my tracks. I was arrested by a feeling that I had never felt before. The uncanny sensation of seeing familiarity in a place I had never been. I stood there, trying to understand how I could recognize a place I hadn't ever seen. And then I realized what it was. The living room I was standing in was an exact replica of one of the rooms I'd created at work. 
the soft yellow paint on the walls, the placement of the charcoal-colored loveseat, the three matching accent tables atop the braided rug, and the wooden hutch in the corner, even the position of the brass light fixtures and the window on the east-facing wall. They were all exactly as I'd made them in an illustration. I must have gone pale, because Shannon turned to me and asked if I was okay. Yes, I said, nodding insistently. I was still struggling to understand what I had walked into, though. I supposed it wasn't all that unusual for someone to have swanky furniture from H. Pearl Nelson & Co., especially in a place like Manhattan. They had probably just seen the catalog that the illustration had appeared in, and, apparently, they'd been quite inspired by it. So inspired, in fact, that they'd decided to use it as an exact template for their living room. It seemed unlikely, but obviously not impossible. Still, I was confounded by the experience, and when I got home that night, I decided to dig through my computer for the catalog that the design had been published in. Someone had snapped a photo of Shannon and I at the party, and I'd asked them to send it to me. I wanted to compare the layout of the room to the design I had made at work. Buried deep in a forgotten corner of my hard drive, I was able to find the original illustration. Apparently, I had made it about six months before, and, as expected, it perfectly mirrored the room from the party. But for the life of me, I couldn't find where it had been published. It didn't appear in my proofs of any of the quarterly catalogs or brochures. I couldn't find it in any of the marketing emails or banner ads that we'd sent out. But it must have been published at some point. Was it possible that it was just a coincidence? Was I overcomplicating a simple situation? It was just a few pieces of furniture in a yellow room. Was that really so bizarre? But no matter how I tried to rationalize it, it still felt strange. Like seeing a place that wasn't meant to exist in the real world. I tried to let it go, and eventually I did, but apparently not entirely. In my dream that night, I was back in that unusual room. Only now there weren't any people there. The party had ended, or perhaps had never started at all. And the only thing there was the surreal arrangement of furniture. I struggled to remember how I'd gotten there, eventually resolving to find my way back home. But no matter the direction I tried to take, it always led me back to the same room. Every doorway returned me to that same, uniquely composed space. I walked over to the window and peered outside, but rather than seeing the bright Manhattan skyline, I was greeted by an endless void. I stared out at the black, featureless world until something stirred me awake. For a while, I laid there, panting and sweating, feeling like I'd just fallen from a great height. When I'd sufficiently calmed myself, I rose from bed and set about my morning routine, showering and throwing a quick breakfast together before sitting down for work. 
I was working on the new spring-summer catalog, arranging pieces of furniture in aesthetically pleasing formations, trying to create places where people could see themselves, places that looked like home. But there were some mornings when I just didn't know where to begin, mornings where I was held by a kind of creative paralysis. And this was just such a morning. No matter how long I stared at the empty white screen, I just couldn't bring myself to add anything to it. All I could think about was the room from the party the night before. I eventually decided to get up and take a walk to a nearby coffee shop. Maybe a little fresh air would help me focus, I thought. I went downstairs and set off, my mood immediately lifting as the sun hit my skin. Birds were singing, a light breeze was blowing. I walked by a woman and noticed her smile excitedly as she talked on the phone about picking up a birthday present for her daughter. I so enjoyed my walk that when I arrived at the coffee shop, I didn't want to stop. I stepped inside, got my drink, and then I continued down the sidewalk, trying not to think so much, to simply be in my body in the place where I was. And it worked for a while. Until, as I stepped onto the curb after crossing the street, I noticed something inexplicable. I was passed by a woman. I had looked up and seen her only briefly as she passed, but when I did, I had found her immediately familiar. I watched her smile as if in slow motion, pressing her phone against her ear. And for a moment, before she even spoke, I knew what she was about to say. That she was finally on her way to pick up the birthday present. That she couldn't wait to see the look on her daughter's face when she gave it to her. Hadn't I just walked by the same woman, making the same comment a few minutes before? Maybe she had just walked in a loop, I thought, and she'd still been having the same conversation when she circled back around. But could she have gone all the way around the block that quickly? And if not, was it that unbelievable that two similar-looking women would be talking about their daughter's birthday on the phone? New York was a big city, I knew. There had to be at least a dozen mothers doting over their daughter's birthday across the city at that moment. Still, I couldn't help but feeling like I was stuck in a loop. Like something was automating reality, and I just noticed one of its glitches. I turned around to get another look at the woman, but she was gone. Feeling dangerously close to losing my composure, I decided to head back home. I kept my head down the whole way back to my apartment, afraid of what I might see or encounter. When I got inside, I spent a few minutes staring at my face in the bathroom mirror. Is this what it feels like to go insane? I asked myself. I forced myself to sit down and get back to work. And though focus didn't come easy, I was able to at least finish out the day. Something had changed in me, though. Over the following days, 
I became terrified at the thought of leaving my apartment. I was afraid of what I might see, and by extension, of what the things I saw said about my mental state. Sometimes, I became terrified that an act as simple as looking out the window could upend my feeble grasp on reality. What if I saw something that didn't make sense? What if I saw something that wasn't supposed to be there? The fear persisted for a couple weeks, at which point my friends began to grow concerned about me. Shannon and his partner Ethan came over and suggested we get out of the city for the weekend. I hadn't explained to them in complete detail the irrational fears I was having, but they could see enough to know that I needed a bit of help. I was disheveled, unshaven, cut off from the world. They said that we didn't have to talk about anything if I didn't want to, but that they thought maybe it would be good for me to get out of the house. Shannon said that his family had a cabin upstate. We could go up there, do some camping, sit out on the lake. Sounds nice, I said. And although I was a bit ashamed of the condition I was in, I agreed to go with them. I packed a bag, and together we went downstairs. Ethan drove while Shannon and I played DJ. It didn't take long for me to feel grateful that they'd come and gotten me. As soon as we got outside the city, I started to feel better. We continued north along I-87 for a couple hours, and eventually took an exit near Woodstock. We drove a few miles into the woods, the canopy of trees so thick in some areas it looked like dusk was falling. Soon the forest opened, revealing a small lake with a calm, glass-like surface. A dozen or so cabins had been built around the lake's shore, and Ethan brought us to a stop in front of one. It was a narrow A-frame structure with a steeply pitched roof and faded green trim. The three of us stepped out of the car and stretched our legs. I looked at the lake's reflective surface shimmering through the trees. How long have your parents had this place? I asked. They bought it in the 80s for $10,000, Shannon said, looking back at me shrewdly. But the reason none of us have homes is because of avocado toast. I smiled, and we grabbed our bags out of the car and headed inside. The cabin opened into a kitchen and living area, divided by an old wood-burning stove. On the far side of the kitchen were two small bedrooms. Ethan sunk into a beanbag chair in the living room, while Shannon fetched a bottle of wine from the kitchen. Listen, he said, pouring each of us a glass. I mean what I said. There's no pressure. But I want you to know that we're here if there's anything you want to talk about. Thanks, I said. I thought about trying to explain my fear to them. I wasn't even sure I could explain it to myself. What exactly was I afraid of? I didn't know how to describe it, other than by saying that I was afraid that the world wasn't what it appeared to be. That the people and things I saw didn't really exist in the way I thought they did. 
that something put them there. Seeing that I'd fallen silent, Shannon rose from his chair. Okay, how about this, he said, taking a hearty sip of his wine. How about we play a game? Like what? Ethan asked from the beanbag chair. I don't know, Shannon replied. Like, okay, I've got one. If you could have sex with anyone, living or dead, who would you pick? Jesus, Ethan said. That's disgusting. Why would I want to have sex with a dead person? No, Shannon shouted. They're not dead when you have sex with them. They're, you know what, forget it. He turned to me and took another sip of his wine. We're obviously not very good at this, he said. He looked out the window at the water lapping calmly at the shoreline. How about we just take a walk down to the lake, he offered. Sure, I said. Ethan got up and shrugged in loose agreement as well, and the three of us took our glasses and made our way out the back door. We walked down a narrow dirt path that led through the trees. When it reached the lakeside, the trail continued, winding its way between the lake's shore and the small houses and cabins nestled against it. As I passed under a dogwood tree, its soft white flowers in full bloom, I thought about the events that had led to me becoming a temporary shut-in. I pictured the room at the party, the perfect replica of the catalog illustration I'd made. I thought back on the inexplicable repeating pedestrian. I again began to feel the terror well up in me. I became hyper-aware of my senses, gripped by a looming fear that at any second I might encounter something that shouldn't be there. I became convinced that there was something just outside my field of view that held the power to completely dislodge my understanding of reality. I stopped walking, shutting my eyes tightly. Look, said a faint voice in my head, but I couldn't. Lift your eyes and look, it said. Slowly, I opened my eyes and looked at the trail before me. At first, I was relieved to see that nothing in front of me appeared out of place. The trail threaded through the woods in front of me. On one side was the lake, its surface quiet and placid, and on the other side was a cabin. But was it a cabin? Well, of course it's a cabin, I thought to myself. What else could it be? I wasn't sure. I only knew that something seemed off about it. In many ways, it just looked like a generic log cabin. A red brick chimney extended from its corrugated metal roof, its walls constructed of hardy sections of timber, notched on each end to sit neatly atop one another. But there was something vaguely upsetting about the appearance of the cabin. I had to stare at it for a minute before I realized what it was. It looks flat, I thought. That was it, I realized. In a strange way, the cabin looked like a two-dimensional object that had been placed in three-dimensional space. It was like the cabin itself wasn't there, but was displaying an image of what it would look like if it was. If I moved from side to side, 
my perspective of it changed slightly. But I couldn't help but feel like if I had walked up next to it, it would just be empty on the other side. I couldn't walk up next to it, though. I couldn't move at all. I was paralyzed with fear. A deep, panicked fear about what I perceived my surroundings to be and whether I could trust those perceptions. Julian, I heard someone call, but I couldn't turn to see who it was. Julian, it sounded familiar, yet I couldn't identify it. I felt like I had lost my ability to process information. Julian, the voice called again, and then the world went black. When I awoke, I was in a familiar place, but I was looking at it from an unfamiliar perspective. I recognized the pale cream-colored walls of St. Agatha's almost immediately. I had just never looked up at them from one of the beds. It was a disorienting experience, like riding in the passenger seat of your own car or hearing your voice on a recording. The room I was in was brightly lit, its curtains drawn, and I could see that I was alone. A rolling desk stood next to the bed, a half-empty cup of water sitting on its surface. I was dressed in patient attire, a gray pair of sweatpants and a gray crew-neck shirt. I couldn't have said where my clothes were, or my phone, or wallet. I didn't know what time or even what day it was. And I had no idea how the hell I'd gotten back to Montana from upstate New York. There was a lot I didn't know, I realized. Hello, I called, my voice hollowed out by uncertainty. I couldn't hear any other voices, or any movement in the halls. Hello? I called out again. I slowly swung first one leg and then the other off the side of the bed. As my feet emerged from under the sheets, I saw padded socks on my feet. I stood shakily, not sure if I should anticipate pain from some injury I didn't remember suffering. What can I remember? I asked myself. Nothing. I was in New York with Shannon and Ethan, consumed by the apparition of a house. And then I was alone, in a room at St. Agatha's. It felt like nothing more than a blink in between. Hello, I called out again, taking a tentative step towards the door. I reached out for the doorknob, and just as I did, the door swung open. A woman stood before me. She wore a simple blue pair of scrubs and held a clipboard in one hand. Her curly brown hair was tied tight in a bun, and she had dark yet captivating eyes. I was surprised that I didn't recognize her. In my time volunteering there, I thought I'd gotten to know just about everyone on staff. But I supposed she had probably been hired after I'd moved to New York. Um, hi, I said, slowly stepping backward. Good morning, Mr. Spectre, she said, 
smiling. My name is Talia. I'll be the nurse's assistant on your ward today. Good morning, I said, sitting back down on the bed. I just wanted to come by and see how you're feeling this morning, she said. Feeling. Well, I guess I'm struggling a bit. She scribbled something on her clipboard and looked back up at me. I... I don't remember how I got here, I said. Or why I'm here. I see, she said sympathetically, still writing on her clipboard. So you're having some memory trouble today. I guess, I said. I tried to force myself to illuminate the dark spot in my mind. But there was nothing there. Being in a place like this can be quite disorienting, I'm sure, she said. But the doctor will be in shortly, and I can make sure she comes by to speak with you. All right, I said. Well, in the meantime, do you know where my stuff is? I need to email my job and let them know I can't work. She narrowed her eyes ever so slightly. Your job? she asked. Well, yeah, I said, wary of her apparent confusion. Let me just go see if I can find someone to help you, she said, easing herself towards the door. I'll just be a minute, Mr. Spectre. Just try to stay comfortable. She left the room, gently shutting the door as she did. For a while after she was gone, I sat there on the edge of the bed my hands resting in my lap, my mind racing as I desperately tried to make sense of the situation I'd found myself in. I'm not sure how much time passed, but I was still sitting there on the edge of the bed when the door opened again. This time, a much shorter woman with straight silver hair peeked inside. Pinned to her chest was a name tag that said, Vera Batterman, M.D., to my surprise, I didn't recognize her either. Hello, Julian, she said warmly. Hi, I replied. I heard you wanted to speak with me, she said. I understand you're having a bit of difficulty this morning. I nodded, taking in a deep breath. Yeah, I said. I, I don't know how I got here. Well, that I can't answer, she said, because I don't know. You were here when I started here, and that was two years ago. You mean back when I volunteered here, I asked. She looked at me with a puzzled expression. When did you volunteer here, she asked. For the last couple years. I said, suddenly doubting my own memories. Up until I moved to New York. New York, she asked. Again, her face betrayed an air of confusion. Before I could reply, she pulled a stool over and sat down before me. She had kind eyes, her face textured by soft wrinkles. Mr. Spectre, I'll be honest with you. 
you're in a delicate phase of your recovery. And I don't want to say anything that might be a shock to your system. I don't want to risk losing all the progress we've made. I swallowed dryly. Are you saying I was never in New York? I asked. She bowed her head slightly. She looked like she was trying to smile, but her expression was more akin to a frown. Are you hungry, Julian? She asked. There's breakfast out in the common area. Maybe get a bite to eat. Sit outside in the courtyard for a while and get some sun. And then we'll talk again this afternoon. She rose from the stool and made another feeble attempt at a smile. And then she turned and let herself out. I sat for another minute or so, and then I got up and walked cautiously toward the door. I opened it and poked my head out into the hallway. And then I slowly made my way down the hall to the common area. There were a few people that I recognized eating there, but I didn't approach them for fear of what other strange new truths might be revealed by talking to them. Instead, I grabbed a slice of toast and an apple and walked over to the far side of the room where the library was located. I perused the aisles of the library, its tall steel bookshelves standing just below the acoustic ceiling. I ran my hand along the spines of the books, until one of them caught my eye. Its cover was a deep blue, and it was titled, The Fractured Self, A Look at Rare Psychiatric Disorders. It looked familiar, but I couldn't remember ever having read it. When I flipped the front cover open, I noticed a tag pasted inside. In printed letters at the top of the tag, it said, This book was borrowed from St. Agatha's Residential Facility Library. Below the words were columns of boxes, where everyone who checked the book out was meant to leave their name and the date that they borrowed it. There were only three names listed, and one of them was mine. And it wasn't only my name, but my handwriting as well. The date next to my name indicated that I'd checked it out in October, a year and a half before. I suddenly felt weak. Unable to comprehend what I was seeing, I tucked the book under my arm and went outside into the courtyard. It was an open and airy space, bordered on all three sides by the red brick buildings that comprised St. Agatha's. The courtyard contained several tall trees and an assortment of shrubs and hedges. A handful of benches were placed throughout, connected by winding stone pathways. On the far side, the bird coach stood at the base of a spruce tree, hollering excitedly at a pair of magpies. I sat down on one of the benches, taking a bite of the soggy slice of toast I'd been carrying around and placing the apple at my side. I set the book in my lap and flipped it open. It told the stories of a dozen people who were afflicted by rare, and in some cases completely unknown, psychiatric conditions. I scanned each page, 
searching for something I recognized, but nothing stood out to me. As I flipped through the fourth chapter, though, I noticed several passages had been underlined. I looked back at the tag inside the front cover where my name appeared. It seemed to have been written in the same shade of blue ink as had been used to underline the passages. Curious, I returned to the fourth chapter and began to read. The chapter examined the case of a man named Abner Berkson. Berkson was a painter living in rural Pennsylvania. In the early 1960s, when he was 43 years old, he became gravely ill. He sustained a fever so hot that his skin began to blister and peel. All the while, he was comatose, fed through a tube and unable to speak. When he woke in the hospital two and a half weeks later, it appeared that his health had been restored. But when his wife took him home, she insisted that he had changed, that he seemed different. Berkson had apparently taken on the belief that he'd never actually woken up from his coma, that he was still unconscious in his hospital bed, and that all the things he perceived to be going on around him were in fact the details of a dream. He grew suspicious of his wife and the other people close to him, and soon after, he became terrified of leaving his house, his behavior often erratic and unpredictable. His wife attempted to care for him, but soon felt that she wasn't up to the job. So she had him committed to a psychiatric facility. Berkson would spend the rest of his life at Sugar Creek State Hospital. It was at this point in the book that the underlined passages began. With a thick blue line drawn underneath, the text read, The overwhelming majority of Berkson's time at Sugar Creek was spent doing one thing, drawing. Berkson obsessively drew pictures of his own house. In ink, pencil, charcoal, and occasionally even watercolor, he would meticulously illustrate the rooms of his house. He drew entirely from memory, recreating the layout and furniture arrangement exactly as he'd left it. When asked why, Berkson told doctors that ever since his illness, his house had been the only place he felt safe. He believed the world he had found himself in was unstable, claiming that he could occasionally see beyond it into the vast nothing that surrounded the confines of his dream. The world of hallucination is a faulty one, he was quoted as saying. My mind strives to create a convincing environment, but there are always mistakes. Things are out of place. They're wrong. Just as my drawings contain imperfections, the world I've come to occupy is flawed. I shut the book and placed it by my side. I closed my eyes and sat there, listening to the excited chant of the bird coach, thinking about Abner Berkson, about his obsession with drawing the rooms of his house. 
but my thoughts kept inevitably circling back to my life, to my job. The timeline of my life no longer felt like a natural progression from one event to the next. It felt like something that had been orchestrated, or perhaps something that I'd simply imagined. I paused, noticing that the world had gone silent, that the air had gone still. I could no longer hear the excited voice of the bird coach, could no longer feel the current of the breeze. I wondered what I would see if I opened my eyes. I wondered if I would see anything at all. Hey there, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Seeing as Halloween is drawing ever near, I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about my good friends at The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is a horror anthology podcast, in case you've never heard of it. Sort of similar to mine in that each episode is an original, standalone story. And to celebrate this joyous month we call October, The Wrong Station is doing the unthinkable. They've got a pledge drive going on, where they're putting out a new episode every day for the entire month. This is completely insane to me. As you probably know, I struggle to write one episode every 31 days, so putting out 31 episodes in 31 days is quite a feat. And on top of that, the episodes are freaking good, so definitely go check them out. They've got lots of eerie and unsettling stories to enjoy. And that's Wrong Station. Check them out anywhere you listen to podcasts. It'll blow your mind. It's awesome. Also, if you need more of my show in your life, you can subscribe to my Patreon. It's $3 per new episode. You get access to my audiobook. You get to hear every episode early. And the link for that can be found in the episode description, as well as in the bio for the show. You can also pick up a t-shirt. I got several t-shirt designs available. The link for that is also in the episode description as well as the show bio. You can also follow me on social media, and of course I would appreciate it if you left a rating or review, but if you don't feel like doing that, that's okay too, because you're here, and I appreciate that, so thank you. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.